Welcome to Real Life Church. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us online at reallifeankeny.org. Now let's join this week's service already in progress. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. And then Philippians chapter 4, 8 through 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your holy word. I thank you for who you are, for the way that you have made yourself available to us, the way that you have invited us to come and drink deeply of you, delight in you, and have a close and intimate life-saving, peace-giving, joy-giving relationship with you. Father, we thank you for the blood of Jesus, your Son, that cleanses us from all sin, that gives us peace before God. I pray, God, today that you would instill in us, Lord, just a hunger and a thirst for more of you, to delight ourselves in you and in your Holy Word, God, may we delight in you, truly delight. Give us an appetite, God, for the things of you and for the things of your word, we pray. Um, Lord, we love you. We invite your spirit to come and speak this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. In his book called Teaching the Elephant to Dance, which I admit I have not read, James Velasco describes how trainers shackle young elephants with heavy chains to to deeply embedded stakes. Is this thing making some extra noise here? I don't know if we can do anything about that or not. But Move it out a little bit. My apologies. We'll get this figured out here. Okay. Um, so the author describes how trainers shackle young elephants with heavy chains to deeply embedded stakes. This trains the elephant's mind that he cannot go anywhere no matter how hard he would try. The training of the elephant's mind is so effective, though, that when the elephant is older, the trainer simply places a small metal brace, uh, bracelet around their foot. They don't even worry or bother to attach it to anything or, or to attach it to the stake because the elephant at that point believes that he is chained down and can't go anywhere, so he will stay put. He does not move, even though actually nothing is holding him in place. Obviously, we don't have a whole lot in common with elephants, but we do have in common that similar to this little anecdote, our thoughts are powerful and they greatly influence how we live our lives. The Bible closely links our thoughts and our minds to our actions. Scripture also 
makes plain that our thoughts and minds play crucial roles in our sanctification, which is the process of us becoming more like Jesus Christ, God's Son. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Colossians 3 verse 2 says, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. There is certainly no shortage of people, causes, movements, opinions, vying for our attention, desiring to communicate to us a particular message that might influence our thinking and ultimately our behavior in one direction or another. So let me ask you, and let me ask myself, Think about this past week. Who is influencing, who has been influencing your thoughts this week? Through the day in and day out, where was the focus of your thoughts? Who or what was given the opportunity to direct your thoughts? Or what were the sources of the material that entered into your mind? I believe that our passages today speak powerfully on this topic of our minds and thoughts and how God wants to use them in our lives. So let's turn our attention to Psalm 1, beginning in verse 1 again. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Let's just unpack this phrase a little bit here. Counsel is basically just advice given regarding how to live. So it says, Blessed is the man whose direction in life is not shaped by the influence of wickedness. Now, let us be careful here not to just quickly conclude, now, I don't need to worry about that. I would never be influenced by wickedness. Because the word wicked here does not just necessarily refer only to the most advanced forms of evil. You know, perhaps things come to your mind, uh, perhaps people like Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, serial killers, Satan worshipers, or the devil himself. Rather, wicked here is a much broader term. It it simply refers to a sinner who is falling short of God's perfect standard and is not actively pursuing a supernaturally redeemed and sanctified life. So, the counsel of the wicked can simply be natural, man-centered thinking, which is evil by default. As Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 13 through 14, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. My friends, the road that leads to destruction is the road that is most heavily populated. Therefore, the voices of the many on that wide road will always be the loudest and most prevalent voices around us. And those many voices and influences would gladly point us down that same road, that same wide road that leads to destruction. So, the counsel of the wicked, in reality, is all around us. It will usually be the loudest, most prevalent voice in our culture and in our world. It may not always be obvious in its promotion of evil, especially if we are not closely walking with the Lord. It may be presented to us by people we like, people we have a close relationship with, perhaps. It may be presented in an attractive or appealing way. The counsel of the wicked may take many subtle and attractive forms, perhaps promoting 
things that our flesh is naturally predisposed to already, like self-centeredness, worldly pleasures, materialism, anxiety, or pride. A major part of Satan's work is to plant ideas in our mind in our minds that will tempt us and deceive us to sin by using lies and craftiness to make sin look appealing. I mean, think all the way back even to the Garden of Eden in the very beginning. Satan comes into the garden. He did not hit Adam and Eve with a stick. He hit them with an idea. He hit them with a thought. He hit them with the counsel of the wicked. He began to question what God said. Did God really say? The counsel of the wicked can even come from our own flesh, since we are sinners as well. We don't even need anybody else's help with being quick to complain, to be ungrateful, or to criticize others, or many other things. These sins start in our own minds. I'd like to take a closer look at these three words that are used in this first verse. The wicked, sinners, and scoffers. And I think we see a progression here that's, that's helpful to notice. The wicked, as we mentioned, are, are simply those who have transgressed God's law. So it's a broad term. Sinners, in the next phrase, is individuals with a habitual inclination to sin. Such persons have not just committed an isolated act of evil, but actually live lives dominated and shaped by their desire to do evil. And then the next step is even further. Scoffers go beyond just living lives dominated by sin. Uh, and then I'm going to a quote from the NIV application, application commentary. They actually actively seek through their mockery to express disdain for right living, and they seek to belittle and undermine those who want to be righteous. Mockers act out of overweening pride and refuse to seek or, in, or accept instruction or correction. Through their disdain, they stir up anger and strife. There is solidarity in numbers, and those who associate with such mockers often adopt their mocking ways. Also notice the progression in verse 1 uh, in the action phrases of, of the verse. Uh, we start with simply walking in the counsel of the wicked. Then we progress. And the next phrase is, nor stands in the way of sinners. The stand, the word stand here, carries a sense of intentionally taking a stand in the way, in the lifestyle, in the habits of sinners, staking out the claim of our lives and how we will live their, our life in, in that manner, in, in the way of sinners. Then finally, the last action phrase, sits in the seat of scoffers, shows settling in to permanent residency in a life of celebrated depravity. Many scholars believe, and it seems reasonable to me as well, that this pattern of increasing wickedness is intentionally used in this psalm to describe the downward spiral of the person who begins to walk in the counsel of the wicked if their path is not corrected by repentance. My friends, it all begins with walking in the counsel of the wicked. That's where it starts. So do you hear in that verse the incredible importance of what we allow into our minds, what we allow to influence our thinking? 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Now, just quickly, by way of clarification, the cautions in Psalm 1, of course, are, are not... Uh, or, excuse me, the cautions in Psalm 1 are against adopting the lifestyle 
and attitude of the wicked, but they are not against redemptive contact with them. Surely we are, we are called to love sinners, and of course we are ourselves sinners saved by grace. And we are called to reach out to them with the gospel like Jesus did. Verse 2, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Notice the stark contrast here. We move into the realms of joy, of goodness, of, of delight. The man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked is the one who delights in the law of the Lord. Also notice what this verse does not say. It does not say that the one who uh, does not walk in the counsel of the wicked is just the one who's really self-disciplined and skilled at being good. It also doesn't say that he just knows better than to be influenced by wicked people. It does not inherently reside in us, this ability to not walk in the counsel of the wicked. You see, only through a supernatural walk with God and delight in his word will we escape the otherwise pervasive influence of wickedness and the natural sinful tendencies of our own fallen flesh. The power simply does not reside within our natural selves to live rightly on our own. We just can't do it. And we also cannot simply just abstain from evil outright. We need to replace it with something much greater. That something is God and His Word. If we seek to just avoid the really big sins in our lives... It will result in a life that may appear good to the outside observer, but is still lived primarily for ourselves and will be filled with the sins of the heart, things like pride, selfishness, and worldliness. That is not a life that is pleasing to the Lord. My friends, God is after our whole heart. Jesus did not leave us the option of partial or half-hearted obedience. Let's focus in again on that phrase, His delight is in the law of the Lord. His delight. Brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you today that there is great joy, there is great delight in meditating on God's Word. This is not, this, this ex- exhortation, God's Word today, is not an, oh man, do I have to do this type of a ex- exhortation. That is not the sense in which is intended, I believe, to land on us. This exhortation of God's word is for our joy. Let, let not this verse strike you as a heavy burden to bear. Like, how am I going to do that? Day and night, that sounds exhausting. Meditating on, meditating on God's word all the time? Who can do that? So let it not strike you as a heavy burden to bear. After all, we live under grace, not under a system of works, of just trying harder and harder to finally please God. Instead, let this verse be a glorious invitation to you from the God of the whole universe to delight that we will not know apart from our obedience to this command. He is saying to you today, Come, drink deeply of my living waters. Let my words and thoughts fill your heart and your mind and delight your heart and mind. For my words are goodness, wholeness, and life to you. So let me ask you, do you desire 
that, you, that your mind would be filled with the greatest and most glorious things, the most important, joy-producing, majestic things. Do you desire that your mind would be filled with the things that are pure and true and aligned with God's holy character and nature? If the answer to those things is yes, then the invitation is to come and delight in meditating on God's word. As you fill your hearts and minds with God's words and delight in them, you are delighting in God and being filled by his spirit. God's word informs and motivates our prayers. In fact, it gives very birth to our prayers. His word is the tangible resource that he has given us that becomes sort of the playing field, if you will, that facilitates our entire relationship with him. It is indeed, through, is indeed, God's word is indeed, excuse me, the window through which we gaze by faith to behold the face of our God. Delighting in and meditating on God's word goes hand in hand with being filled by the spirit. For a moment, I want you to think about some of the good some of the pleasurable things you enjoy in your life. Perhaps your family, your marriage, the beauty of a sunset, great food, your favorite recreation or hobby, perhaps. Now, as you picture that thing, I want you to now consider that every good, beautiful, and enjoyable thing is only good, beautiful, or enjoyable because... God has instilled a tiny sliver of his goodness, his beauty, and his pleasure in that piece of his creation. It is only good or beautiful or pleasurable, truly, insofar as it reflects God's character and nature. He is the very source and the complete perfection of that goodness, beauty, and enjoyment. So, let the good things in life point us to him that we would seek out Him as the source, Him as the perfect completion of that beauty, and not to think that we're going to find our satisfaction in those other, lesser, mere shadows of God's glory. May the good things further motivate us to seek God's face. God in whom alone dwells perfect goodness, beauty, pleasure, and joy. He comes to us, and makes himself available to us in his word. Let us, then, delight in his word and in him. The next phrase in verse 2, and on his law, he meditates day and night. Now, meditate may sound like a fancy, maybe an intimidating word. We may, may wonder, what exactly does that mean? How do I do that? Uh, But really, it just means to focus your thoughts on something. To ponder it, to think about it, to reflect on it. I think a helpful illustration, if you've heard of a cow that chews its cud, this is just, you know, they eat the grass, and they chew it, and they swallow it, and they have this strange mechanism where it actually comes back up from their stomach, and they chew it some more. And they chew and chew and chew, and then they swallow it. It might happen multiple times. And this is the process of, of... getting every little bit of nourishment out of that grass through this repeated chewing. To me, that's a helpful picture of meditation. We're ruminating on it. We're allowing it to fill our minds and our hearts. We're digesting it, letting it get deep into our hearts, our minds, into our, into our souls. 
through uh, prolonged thought on that verse. That's all. Really, meditation uh, needs to me. It's nothing too complicated or fancy. And, and I want to encourage us today, brothers and sisters, you can meditate on God's Word day and night. You can. It is not, it is not just for monks. Okay, We don't... None of us, this is not a call for you to quit your job and move into a monastery and do nothing but have your nose uh, in, in the Bible all day long, every day, which, you know, perhaps would be great, but um, but we don't have to leave our everyday lives. We have families, we have jobs, we have responsibilities God's given us, and that's great. But we can still meditate on God's Word day and night. And I just encourage you, start with something simple. Maybe even use... You know, the memory text um, for this month from the bulletin on the back. I just, I just tore um, this out, and it's Romans 1, or excuse me, Romans 8, 1 through 4 this month. Maybe just tear this out of the bulletin every month. Take it with you. Put it in your pocket. You know, maybe as you're working on memorizing it, maybe focus on, on a different sentence or verse every day. Pull it out at lunchtime. Pull it out when you have a break. You know, anytime you're standing in line, just throughout the little breaks in your day, pull it out. And bring it to mind again. Just a helpful tool. And there's probably many others that you could use. Practical ways to bring God's word into your everyday life. And to begin to meditate on it. To keep it before your eyes and your mind. Maybe in your Bible reading each day. Just write down the one verse or sentence that impacted you the most. Write it down on a 3 by 5 card. Take it with you. Again, pull it out throughout the day. And be reminded of it. Memorize it. Let it fill your mind. Meditate on God's word. A similar verse to uh, this verse 2 appears in Psalm 119, verse 97. It says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Regarding this verse, Charles Spurgeon wrote, This was both the effect of his love and the cause of it. He meditated in God's word because he loved it. And then he loved it the more because he meditated in it. He could not have enough of it, so ardently did he love it. All the day was not too long for his converse with it. His main prayer, his noonday thought, his evening song were all out of holy writ. Yea, in his worldly business, he still kept his mind saturated with the law of the Lord. It is said of some men that the more you know them, the less you will admire them. But the reverse is true of God's word. Familiarity with the word of God breeds affection and affection seeks yet greater familiarity. When thy law and my meditation are together all the day, the day grows holy, devout, and happy, and the heart lives with God. What a powerful description of, of the power of, God, of, of meditation on God's word. Verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. Similar to our bodies, our souls need a continual supply of food or nourishment. It's just a spiritual fact of life. We can't escape it. So the question for us is, what are we feeding on? The shocking thing about Psalm 1 to me is that only two options are presented. We're either feeding on the things of the flesh, which are natural, worldly, oriented toward our, our fleshly passions, 
or we are feeding on the things of God and of his word. The mind that delights in God's word and is filled with things pleasing to God will find the wholeness, delight, joy, and satisfaction in God that our souls crave. And we will find it nowhere else. It can't be found anywhere else. On the other hand, to the degree that our minds are not filled with God's word, God's truth, and God's goodness, the resulting vacuum in our minds will be filled with the influence of lies, temptations, ungratefulness, and sin in general. All seeking to lead us astray while promising the good life according to the devil, the world, and our own sinful flesh. John fifteen five says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, Jeremiah 2.13, says this, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. A cistern is like a well. Okay, so it would have been not fresh water. It would have been stale and sitting there. But he says, these cisterns, the cisterns that we hew out on our own, in other words, going somewhere else to try to find satisfaction instead of God, they aren't even holding the water. They're broken. All the water is run out. And we're down there trying to like scoop in some moist dirt or something into our mouth that's probably filled with disease and who knows what else. That's the picture. Instead of going to the fountain of living waters that is God. Do we really believe that God is the sole fountain of living waters? Or are we looking to something else to satisfy? Some other pursuit of our energies, of our mind, of our hearts? We simply have to have more than any worldly thing can offer in order to fill the God-shaped hole that's inside each one of us all other alternative pursuits, uh, trying to find satisfaction, no matter which fleshly desire they appeal to, will lead to brokenness, to emptiness, to disillusionment, and to misery. We will never find what our souls, souls crave apart from God. I'd like to turn our attention now to Philippians 4, 8-9. This verse teaches us to think about the things that align with God's character, with his nature, and with who he is. As we already discussed uh, this morning, the foundational means that we do this is through meditating on God's word, as we, as we discussed. Um, but I also love this verse because it gives us a simple, a straightforward standard that we can use in every situation to evaluate the thoughts of our minds. Maybe call it the Philippians 4 filter. A little bit of alliteration, though the first word starts with P. It sounds like an F. The Philippians 4 filter. This filter can convict us. It can correct us. It can encourage us toward godly thinking. And we need this filter on our minds. You see, if we go around and just give full acceptance, full credibility to any thought that presents itself to our minds, this is a sure recipe for disaster. 
If unchecked, our thoughts will move us from one misery to the next, stealing our contentment, robbing us of our joy and our peace, and even convincing us that we live in a pitiable state. Woe is me. But when we fill our minds with God's word, we see the reality that we are more privileged in Christ than the greatest royalty on earth. We are not victims. We are not enslaved to sin. We are not to be pitied. We are more than conquerors, as Romans 8 says. God himself has seen fit to take up residence inside of us by his Holy Spirit. If that is true, who could bring a charge against us? We are not defined by others' opinions of us or even by our failures, despite the fact that those thoughts may attack our minds. Instead, we are defined by our identity as as Christ's beloved bride. The mind is indeed one of the great battlefields of the Christian life. But for this battle, we have been given the ultimate weapon. Every malady of heart, mind, and soul can be victoriously fought with God's word. Whenever thoughts come to us which produce anxiety, fear, despair, depression, covetousness, lust, hatred, criticizing thoughts of others, discontentment, whenever these thoughts come, let us take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. All of these thoughts can be overcome and destroyed with God's Word as we meditate upon it and we act upon it. And these thoughts will be, will be replaced with glorious thoughts, healing thoughts, life-giving thoughts. Brothers and sisters, is there a temptation or a thought that Satan frequently attacks you with? Pick out a few swords from God's Word, a few verses to fight that temptation or thought. Memorize them. And then when that temptation comes, call those verses to mind. Pray them back to God. Take up the sword of the Spirit and fight. Okay. I would like to take uh, most of the remaining time for application uh, to one major area. And admittedly, you know, there are other areas we could talk about that I'm sure would be worth discussion. But I've chosen one area that I do believe is very important and very pertinent in our world today, and I would like to address it at some length. Um and apply God's word to it. And that area is the entertainment and media in our world today. There are two potential dangers of today's entertainment and media that I would like to discuss. The first potential danger is distraction, the danger of distraction. The second is the danger of corruption. Before I get into these, I I just have to preface this. Please know that my desire is not to set up external legalistic standards My purpose is not to communicate things like, well, Christians should just never watch movies, or or to communicate that that entertainment and media are inherently sinful. Certainly that's not true, and that is not what I'm saying. So please don't hear that. However, my desire is that each of us, with our hearts fully surrendered to the Lordship of Christ in every area of life, and aware how prone our flesh is to deception— My desire is that we would apply the clear teaching of God's word to our lives, including to the area of entertainment and the use of media. Okay, with that being said, let's talk, let's dive right in to the danger of distraction. 
Entertainment and media are all around us and proliferating more every day. The internet, email, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TV, movies, smartphones, sports, concerts, live theater, comedians, radio, iPods, music in general, video games, books, magazines, newspapers, billboards, advertisements, advertisements that show up in our mailbox at home, and even the messages of signs, posters, and packaging when we're out shopping. All these things are communicating messages to us constantly whenever we are exposed to them, and they are seeking to fill our attention and our thoughts. I want to share some stats with you about media usage. George Barna is a Christian man who does a lot of research on cultural issues. In his article called Media Exposure Addiction, dated January 25, 2010, and it's available at georgebarna.com, he states that based on his extensive research, he has come to the conclusion that, quote, media exposure has become America's most widespread and serious addiction, end quote. Later in the article, he goes on to say, two decades ago, the average child under the age of 18 spent about 15 to, excuse me, 15 to 20 hours per week digesting media content. Today, that has nearly tripled to almost 60 hours per week of unduplicated time. 60 hours of the child's week uh, that is now devoted to media. Uh, He goes on to say, they now devote more time to media than to anything other than sleep. That is, if you do the math, 8.5 hours per day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Other research I found estimates that adults, so those over 18, of course, uh, adults on average consume between 14 and 16 hours of media per day. Now that figure allows for duplication, so you could be multitasking and get two media hours in one hour. But taking that into consideration, the average adult consumes 14 to 16 hours of, of media per day. Again, every day of the year. Brothers and sisters, let us not be preoccupied or distracted with these things to the exclusion of meditating day and night on God's Word. What a, what a immensely higher and holier calling it is to, to busy ourselves occupy our minds with the meditation on God's word than to not do that and to allow ourselves to be carried away in, in, into other distractions. We need to make time and space in our lives for our walk with God, to hear from him, to pray to him, to read his word, to let it sink in. Mark chapter 4, verses 18 through 19 say, say this, and it's the parable of the soil, so he's speaking about the seeds that are sown. Jesus says, And others, other seeds, are the ones sown among thorns. They are those, excuse me, they are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things, enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So the cares of the world, the desires for other things, are things that Jesus calls out there. Luke 21, 34 says, But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. 
Again, we see that phrase, cares of this life. So we need to be on guard. We need to be alert. It is possible to let the pull of these lesser things, of of amusements, distract us from the beauty, glory, and awesomeness of God. And to cause us to miss out on the joy and delight in the Lord that God intends for us to have. Indeed, we may find our appetite and passion for seeking out the still, small voice of the Lord, diminished by too much nibbling on the amusements of the world. It's like spoiling our appetite with empty calories so that we are no longer eager to enjoy the sumptuous, satisfying feast prepared for us by our King. Our Father comes to us and beckons to us in Psalm 34, 8, Taste and see that the Lord is good. And if you'll permit me to continue with the food metaphor briefly, if we just ate an entire box of Twinkies and are halfway through a box of Ho-Hos, all washed down with lots and lots of Mountain Dew, the good food that truly satisfies may, have not, may not have much appeal to us at that point. Not to mention, we'll probably be sick to our stomachs. So let us not nibble on the things of the world to the exclusion of a wholehearted pursuit of God and His Word. Next, I want to dive into the danger of corruption. The messages communicated through all this media, of course, contain widely varying degrees of truth and goodness, or, as the case may be, lies and depravity. I'd like to shine a little light on some of the things going on in today's media and entertainment, if you'll bear with me. PluggedIn.com is an extension of uh, Focus on the Family's ministry that provides objective reviews of movies, TV, music, and video games from a Christian perspective. I looked up a random sampling of six or seven primetime network television dramas or sitcoms that I found on the uh, local listings. So keep in mind, this is 6 to 9 p.m., free TV, um, not cable, and I I will spare you the gory details, but I just want to high level point out some uh, across-the-board themes that I saw. Every show I looked up was described as having a preoccupation with sex. The outfits worn by the characters are commonly provocative. The shows regularly glorify many things the Bible clearly condemns. Sexual immorality is turned into material for jokes, something to laugh about, though it destroys lives. Several of the shows normalize and glorify homosexual lifestyles, and all of these things are winsomely dressed up to be entertaining, humorous, and appealing. Brothers and sisters, as Christians in today's world, we cannot afford a casual attitude toward what types of things we allow into our minds. We must be alert and on guard and be jealous for the purity of our hearts and minds for the Lord. We cannot just assume that Hollywood is our friend and that we can trust whatever movie or TV show they produce. Instead, let us submit these areas of our lives to the authority of God's Word. Ephesians 5 Uh, verses 3 through 5, says this, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you 
as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. For, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And then in verse 11, he says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. But unfortunately, the danger of corruption does not end with TV and movies. It saddens me to report that research shows that pornography is turning into a major epidemic in our country. According to an article on FocusOnTheFamily.com, some researchers now estimate that the average age of children's first exposure to pornography is eight years old. That's the average age. CovenantEyes.com reports that 93% of boys and 62% of girls are exposed to pornography before they turn 18. 93% of boys, 62% of girls. According to ProvenMen.org, 64% of U.S. men view pornography at least monthly. Sadly, the percentage of self-identifying Christian men who view pornography at least monthly is exactly the same as the national average, 64%. For men between the ages of 18 to 30, that number jumps to 79% that view pornography at least monthly. The lowest adult male range surveyed by percentage was the 50 to 68-year-old group, which still had a 49% rate. And it's not just men. 19% of women age 18 to 30, and also 42% of women age 31 to 49 view pornography at least monthly. And the damaging effects uh, of pornography are really just beginning to be understood by researchers. But researchers now believe that pornography is addictive in a similar fashion to hard drugs like cocaine and heroin. And it is shown to alter the brain's functioning in measurable ways. Of course... Uh, pornography is a distortion of God's plan for sex inside of marriage, and it distorts how men view women and sexuality. It degrades, objectifies, and victimizes women. And it leaves havoc and destruction of all kinds in its wake. It also has a devastating effect on families. The American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers reports that 56% of divorce cases involve one party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. Matthew 5, 27-30 says, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with, lust, with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Friends, I I don't share all this just to try to depress you. Um, The good news for anyone who feels conviction about any of these areas is that Jesus loves All of us. Jesus loves sinners, including me. Jesus came into the world to seek and to save the lost. And there is forgiveness available to all who trust in Christ and repent of their sin.
There is forgiveness and there is also freedom available to you today through Jesus Christ. So I would invite you to come to Jesus. Look at all the people that came to Christ in the Gospels. Boldly, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the sinners, the despised. Jesus welcomed them with open arms. And he will do the same for all of us. Through the blood of Christ shed on the cross alone, there is complete forgiveness. Our shame and guilt can be washed away. And we can we will find the freedom from sin there and there alone. I want to share Romans 6.22 with you. Listen to this verse. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Friends, do you hear that verse? Do you believe what it says? You have been set free from sin. You are not enslaved to these things. There is freedom in Christ, in Christ alone, and in His cross. And I would invite you that today, you know, any of these things, if there have been issues for you in the past, you are not a slave. You can walk out today a free man, a free woman, through the blood of Christ. God's grace and forgiveness and redemption are and must be effective to compel us to radical and amputative action, as we read in Matthew 5, to flee from evil and pursue God and His righteousness. In other words, put it to death. Bring it into the light. Men, if you have had a problem in in these areas, perhaps pornography, perhaps other things, I encourage you to seek out other believers to help you. Come and talk to Pastor Reed. Come and talk to Pastor Josh. Or come and talk to me. Women, I encourage you to talk to a godly woman in the church that you trust. If you are married, you also need to come clean with your spouse and be honest about what has been going on. Your sin has greatly affected your wife or husband, even if they don't know it yet. So you also need to confess your sin to your spouse and express your repentance and sorrow for violating the marriage covenant that you made with them before God. Now for those who perhaps have not been ensnared by any of these issues, you may be asking yourself, why do I need to hear about all this stuff? I'm glad you asked. Praise the Lord if you have not had any such sins in your life. But let me ask you, do you have sons or daughters? Do you have grandchildren? Do you have brothers and sisters in Christ? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, which I assume for everyone here it must be yes, you may know people who are struggling with these things, with these sins. And you can be help to be part of the solution. You can pray for them. You can help to protect them. You can pray for the protection of your family and of our church and of God's church in this country. You can, be, you can be a compassionate and listening ear. You can be an accountability partner. You can help remove the stigma and fear of talking about these issues with other godly men in your life group. You can help prepare your children to be victorious over the onslaught of these different media dangers that they will encounter as they go out in the world. They're just unavoidable. Better that they are ready to tackle them, better that they are ready to stand on the truth of God's word and not be sucked in, better that they be armed and prepared for battle 
which is what they will encounter. I'm just here to tell you, they will encounter this battle. Men, I'm especially calling on you to step up and to proactively protect your family through spiritual leadership and also through other practical steps as well as God may lead you. Maybe it means the computer is set up uh, where everyone can see it. Maybe password protected so children can only use it when mom and dad are supervising. There are some helpful... uh, there are some Christian websites that provide internet filters that could be downloaded, which may be helpful. For some, it might mean amputating the smartphone, at least temporarily. I mean, there's nothing magical about the external actions, and, and that's not where the, the power is. The power is in the cross and in a closer walk with him. But yet, as we are changed, as we are made holy, it will work itself out in our lives. We will take steps to walk in holiness. And God will lead you in those. I'm confident of that as we desire to seek Him. But one thing is clear. We must take action. Friends, these issues are devouring many people all around us. Today, it is happening. Young and old, inside and outside the church. So let us be a voice for truth, a voice for the gospel, and for the freedom and the joy that is found in Jesus. Let us hold out the gospel of truth, of freedom. There is something better than anything the world has to offer. That He alone is our fountain of living waters. That everything else is a broken cistern. And I would, in closing, I would just come back briefly to the first part of the message. Friends, delight yourself in God's word. Meditate on it day and night. It will change your life. It will change your heart. It will bring you face to face to God and make His presence rich in your life. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just or righteous, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, If there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Let's pray.